All right, let's open up in our Bibles to Romans chapter 2. And our study will come from verses 17 through 29. And before we start reading and studying the word of God, continuing our worship, we're going to bow our hearts and go before the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for who you are, what you are to us. Thank you for all your blessings and and many blessings go unnoticed, Lord. And, And we do thank you for those. We thank you for providing our every need. Thank you, Lord, for even the tough times that you brought us through, maybe in the sometime in the past or maybe even today. We thank you that we are here. We pray your blessings upon um, every servant tonight, that they'll serve in your power, joy and love and that you'll keep everyone on the ground safe. And thank you, Lord, for your servants. Thank you for our worship team and those working in the sound booth tonight, Lord. Um, such a blessing. And we give you glory. I pray for a fresh filling of your spirit. And I pray that I would decrease and you increase. May they hear from you, Lord. May they hear your heart expressed through my mouth in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Romans 2, verses 17 through 29. And the title of tonight's lesson is The Praise That Matters. The Praise That Matters. And in this study, we'll continue to see a case being made for the valid guilt and condemnation of mankind. First, we saw in chapter one, the blatant God rejecter who lived in obvious sin. We saw how guilty they are as God turned them over to a debased mind, a corrupt mind, a morally corrupt mind. And so this black canvas is being painted and it's showing the the dark reality of the spiritual situation that mankind is in without Christ. And it's showing that mankind, of course, is worthy of judgment. And it's because we're dealing with a holy and righteous God. And so God's judgment against mankind without Christ, of course, is valid. And so we, we saw the, the sinner, an obvious sin, the blatant sinner, the, the pagan, the, the Gentile sinner in chapter one and beginning in chapter two, we saw the self-righteous moralist who, who had the audacity to, to judge the, the blatant sinner in chapter one. And so the Holy Spirit through the apostle Paul dealt with those type of people because they thought they were better or their sins are worse than ours. They're more worthy of judgment than we are was their attitude. And so they were dealt with. And now in tonight's lesson, the attention will be focused on the Jew. And so in verse 17, God's word says, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in the law. In other words, you, you brag about your special relationship to God and know his will. Because they have the law, of course, the written law, and they approve of or discern the things that are excellent or important being instructed out of the law. Not only that, but verse 19 says you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes. This is how they see themselves. Speaking of the Jew, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law, the word form, meaning the embodiment of, or the perfect representative of knowledge. So they, they believe they have all of this in the law and the law, of course, came from God. So yes, it is good. It is holy. It is perfect. It is right. in what it declares it is right in, in its judgments of what's right and wrong. It's 
the law from a holy God. But in these verses, 17 through 20, we see the pride of the Jews. They are proud of their privilege of having the written law, the Mosaic law, the law that God gave to Moses. If you remember Moses from the Old Testament scriptures and because they have the law. Not necessarily obeying the law, but just because they have it, they put themselves above other people. And so they are being addressed in this lesson tonight. And the question comes to mind for us because we're not just going to talk about the Jew because there's some application for us. And so the question is, what are we relying on? What are we resting on? Because they rested on the law. And they use the law as the basis for their privileged position before God. They thought that the law was good enough for them to be in God's good graces, a way for them to earn salvation. And so what are we resting on? What are we relying on as believers? Or maybe there's someone in here who never put their faith in Christ. And so you will be considered an unbeliever. So what are you relying on for your salvation? Are you relying on your American citizenship because you're born in America? It automatically makes you a Christian. Are you depending on that? Or how about church membership? Oh, you filled out the application. You dated it and signed it and everything. Read every little jot and tittle, underlined and highlighted it. And so now, based on church membership, oh, that guarantees salvation? And I'm just talking about the visible church. I'm not talking about the real church that we are born into. Or how about just having the Bible on a shelf? Well, they had the written law, but some of us, because we have a Bible or many Bibles at home, that maybe that makes us good enough. Maybe that is a basis for salvation for some people. So what are we resting on? And these things, of course... It don't mean anything if there's no relationship with the God of heaven, with the God of the universe, only through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth and the life. Not only that, but these Jews, they they saw themselves as a guide to the blind, to those who were spiritually blind. In other words, these people needed to be enlightened. And, oh, I have the law. I may not be obeying it. I just have the law. So I have a privileged position. And so I'm better than everyone else. I'm better than the Gentile who does not have the written law before them because they've never been to synagogue. I'm, I'm better than them. So I am a, a, a light, a guide to the blind. They saw themselves. I like what it says in Matthew 15, verse 14. Because here Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. And he said, let them alone, let the Pharisees alone. Uh, And and the Pharisees were one of the sects, S-E-C-T-S at that time, religious leaders. Leave them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, the spiritually blind. And if the blind, the spiritually blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch or pit. If we have some youngsters in here, it's talking about a hole. And so if you have a blind person playing line leader and they have another blind person behind them, if there's a hole, both of them are going to fall into it. But spiritually speaking, the Pharisees were blind. They had the truth before them, but their spiritual blinders weren't removed because they missed the relationship part of it. You see, the law was designed to point out sin and to show people, to show people how, how spiritually bankrupt they are. And of course, point them to their need for their need for a savior. But they didn't see that. It was all outward duty and actions and rituals. It, it wasn't a relationship with the living God. There's even people today with non-biblical views and, and they think they're wiser than everyone else. They think that they are a guide 
to everyone else who's blind. And an example today, you can see this in is, is through the various celebrities or even some athletes who think they are qualified to set the moral standards. No, if I want to know about some type of moral standards, I'm going to go to Jesus. I'm going to go to the God of the Bible. I'm going to open up his love letter and, and read what he says. I don't depend on a celebrity or, or an athlete to tell me what is morally right or wrong. But yet and still, like these Jews here in tonight's lesson, they think they are a guide to the blind. That they are so forward thinking and everybody is just behind and archaic and old in their thinking. Depending on a, on a book that was where the canon, the, the totality of scriptures was, was sealed 2000 years ago, roughly. Oh, you're dependent on that old archaic book. I am enlightened. Listen to us, they would say, and they would think. But if people are not using the word of God, the Bible to teach, what's right and wrong morally or the way to salvation. If they're not using the scriptures, which is God's revelation to teach about who God is, then, then we need to, how about this? And keep it in line with the scriptures. We need to ditch their advice. And yes, the pun was intended. And in verse 21, it says you, therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? Maybe in a less obvious way, but do you steal? Maybe you're looking at that blatant sinner in chapter one, Jew, or maybe Jewish man, you're, you're looking at the self-righteous moralist and talking about how they're stealing, but do you steal? You're reading from the law, Exodus 20. Thou shalt not steal, but how about you? Verse 22, you who say, do not, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? And of course, that could be done in the heart. And Jesus pointed out that situation. That although a person does not commit physical adultery, it's possible to commit it in the heart through lust. And it says, you abhor, you hate idols, but do you rob temples? And maybe this refers to them using stolen items from pagan temples and then maybe gaining a profit from it. Maybe that's the interpretation of it. That's just one thought. And then in verse 23, it says, you who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? You make your boast that I have the law. I have the law of Moses, the the law that God gave to him on Mount Sinai. Yes, we're his chosen people. We're his special people. We have the law. We're better than everyone else. We have an automatic ticket into heaven. We're automatically saved, they would think. But in looking at these scriptures, we also must examine our own lives. Because here we see that some of them have the do as I say, not as I do type of attitude that the scribes and the Pharisees had. And the scribes, by the way, were experts of the law, teachers of the law. They will help interpret the law of Moses. And so that's the type of attitude the scribes and the Pharisees had, do as I say. And Jesus even told people, hey, they sit in the seat of Moses. They they hold an authoritative religious position. So whatever they tell you to do, whatever they tell you to observe, go ahead and do it. But don't copy their behavior. Because they say stuff, but then they don't do it. And Jesus himself mentioned that. But how about us? Do we have a do as I say type of attitude or do we have a follow me as I follow Christ type of attitude? And there is one person mentioned in the Bible who actually used that line. Follow me as I follow Christ or imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's the Apostle Paul. First Corinthians 11 1. So do we have that type of attitude? Or do we point out things that are wrong and 
rightfully so if it's based on the word of God. But do we do that and not see the wrong that we do? And we touched on a little bit of that last week. In verse 24, it says, for the name of God is blasphemed. So this is a quote from the Old Testament. The name of God is blasphemed. It is insulted among the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, because of you, Jews. As it is written, Isaiah 52, 5. The name of God is blasphemed. It's insulted among the Gentiles because of you, because you are not obedient, because you are not honoring God. Yes, you may be doing that with your lips, but your heart is far from him. It got to the point where God was just sick of their sacrifices. He was sick of their outward religious duties because They were doing those things that looked good on the outside, but their heart was so far from him and wicked. And because of their gross disobedience, and and we can read about that in the Old Testament, many books. The Gentiles had reason to insult the name of God. And when we talk about the name of God, we're not just talking about an identification marker. No, we're talking about his very character, his very being, who he is. And so they gave occasion for people to insult him, to insult his name. And as a Christian, we must be sure that we are not giving the world an opportunity to insult Jesus because of our lifestyle, because of our behavior. Don't give the world an opportunity To insult Jesus. Even through our treatment of them. Or maybe through our hypocrisy. And being a hypocrite of course just means. It means being a stage player. An actor. Pretender. So don't give the world an opportunity to insult Jesus. Or even to reject Jesus because of us. So if people are going to reject Jesus. May it not be because of us. May we continue to be the the loving people that he called us to be, the obedient people that he called us to be. And if they reject them because we're doing what God wants us to do and because we're loving people the way he told us to love them, which, by the way, we can't do on our own. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to help us to do that. If we're doing that, they reject them. That's on them. But let us not give them a reason to blaspheme or to reject him. In verse 25, it says, for circumcision is indeed profitable. So going from the law, the Mosaic law, the written law, now to another right, R-I-T-E, that they had. And that is circumcision. And it is indeed profitable or meaningful if you keep the law. If you do that, plus everything else perfectly in the law, then it's a value. But if you are a breaker of the law, then your circumcision has become uncircumcision. It's it's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And in verse 27, and will not the physically uncircumcised if he fulfills the law judge or condemn you who even with your written code the law of Moses and circumcision are a transgressor of the law or a law breaker won't won't they judge you even though they're not circumcised but they still obey the law you're supposed to be obeying so now not only did The Jews rely on the law as a basis for their relationship with God. But they also trusted in circumcision. And this is something, of course, the males would go through. Oh, we we, we have the circumcision. And so we're, we're good to go. Our salvation is good. We automatically have a good standing with God. 
And circumcision, by the way, was to be an outward sign of Abraham and his descendants covenant or agreement with God. It was an outward sign that they were his people and the God of the Bible, Yahweh, Jehovah, was their God. It was an outward sign of that. And even the males who were living in their community or household who were not born a Jew had to be circumcised as well, the scriptures tell us. However, as we're reminded here in these scriptures, it it was only useful this circumcision was only meaningful if the Jew were to keep the law. Because if they did, then it would show that they were committed to God. If they were to keep the law. And so outward sign. That should be a sign of their commitment. Of their lifestyle of walking in holiness. It's almost like with an engagement. You know, if a person, if a young man give a young lady a ring, that that ring, that engagement ring is an is an outward sign or should be an outward sign of his commitment to marry her sometime in the future. Hopefully not too long. I don't think it takes seven years for somebody to figure out somebody's marriage material, but just wanted to throw that out there. But but it's an outward commitment in that example that I just gave of 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 this person's promise to this young lady. And so their lifestyle, this young man put that ring on her finger, says, hey, I'm going to marry you. I'm committed to you. The lifestyle should match up with that commitment, with that outward sign, that ring. He shouldn't be messing around with other females. Same way with circumcision. It was an outward sign of what was supposed to be their commitment. A sign of their inward commitment to God. Shown through what? Shown through their faithful lifestyle to the word of God. And just to show the the importance of obedience here. And not just performing a ritual. The Holy Spirit through Paul suggests that, hey, if an uncircumcised person, if a Gentile was obedient to the law, their their uncircumcision in their male body part will be worth more than a Jew who is physically circumcised, will be more than their circumcision, be more valuable because it shows their commitment, although outwardly. They're not circumcised. And if that were to happen, if an uncircumcised person was to be obedient the way the Jew was supposed to be obedient, then guilt and condemnation will come upon that circumcised Jew. Why? Because the Jew is the one who had the law right before them. But now you have this uncircumcised person obeying what you were supposed to be doing, doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so they would judge you in that. It would almost be like as parents, we we have, of course, children in the house and we invite a few of the neighbor's children over. It'll be like we telling our own children to clean up the house and the neighbor's children did more than our own children in their own house. It's like, wait a minute, you have my last name. And these neighbor's kids are obeying us more than you are who have my last name. That's what it's like. These Jews, look, you have the sign of your covenant with me, of your agreement with me. But yet and still, somebody without that outward sign, a Gentile, is doing more than what you're doing. That, that's what it's like. And in verses 28 and 29, it says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit or by the spirit, not in the letter or not by obeying the letter of the law, whose praise is not from men, is not from people, but whose praise 
is from God. And so we'll go into detail about what more circumcision means. It's not just an outward thing. We learn more about it here. It's more than what happens to the body of a Jewish male. Because as we see in these verses in 28 and 29, we see that true circumcision or the one that matters most to God is number one of the heart. So the true circumcision or the circumcision that matters most is spiritual. And of course, the outward sign of the circumcision or circumcision is an outward sign of the covenant with God. Again, that's just a representative of what should have taken place in their hearts spiritually. Their hearts must be circumcised. And we find that out again in verse 29. And you may have heard this statement before, but I'll share it with you again. And that's because God, and you see this through the scripture, he, he wants to get to the heart of the matter. Because God understands that it's a matter of the heart. And so that's why the heart needs to be circumcised. What does that mean? That means the fleshly part of the heart must be cut away. And to go even more detailed, it means that, that, that your heart that is dominated by the sin nature needs a circumcision. And so that fleshly part of your heart that, that causes an individual to walk in sin, to give in to their sin nature all the time, that, that fleshly part led by the sin nature all the time, that it needs some surgery. And that's the second thing that we found that we find out here is that it is not a circumcision performed by men. And I'm talking about the circumcision that matters, but it's a circumcision performed by the Holy Spirit, not through the letter, not through obeying the law. Like what it says in Matthew 15, I have another verse for you, 15, 19. And this is going back to something Jesus said. About the heart, the core of, of our being. He says, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness or lying and blasphemies, which is slander. All of that comes out of the heart. And, and so that's why there needs to be a spiritual circumcision, spiritual surgery done by the Holy Spirit to chop off that fleshly, worldly, nasty parts of our hearts so that these things won't be, won't, won't continually come out of our lives, these evil thoughts and murders and, and so forth. And when that circumcision of the heart happens, stubbornness is chopped off. Deuteronomy 10, 16. So stubbornness is chopped off when there's, when there's circumcision of the heart, the spiritual circumcision done by God. And then there is the ability to love God with our whole being, with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. The spiritual surgery needs to happen. Circumcision of the heart needs to happen if we are going to love God the way he wants to be loved. And then, of course, even as we uh, look in Acts 751, and I'm not going to turn there, but you, you can find this idea there. When when our hearts are spiritually circumcised, there is more sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And so stubbornness has to go. We'll begin to love God the way he wants to be loved. And then, of course, we're more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And so is our relationship and our walk with God based on the work of the Spirit? Or is our walk, our relationship based on something that happened in the physical realm? Are we basing our relationship with God? Are we saying that we're saved? Are we saying that we're going to heaven or that we have a right standing with God because of something we've done outwardly? Is that what we're saying? I went with grandma to church. 
since I was five and I went all the way till I was 10. I didn't go to church anymore. I didn't pick up a Bible anymore. Never made a heart commitment to God, but that should be good enough for my right standing with God. Some would believe. So is our relationship based on the work of the spirit or based on something in the physical realm based on our own works? Galatians 6.15 says, for in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, is of any importance. But what matters to God, a new creation is what matters to God. I think this is off. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Galatians 6.15 but a new creation. And of course, that only occurs by being born again of the spirit, being born from above. Because the first time, of course, we're, we're born from beneath on earth physically. But we need to be born of the spirit. And that's what matters to him. And so off the topic of circumcision, and I want to get on the topic of of, of, of the Jew. Because what makes a person a, a, a false Jew as opposed to a real Jew? Well, first of all, the false Jew, according to these scriptures, would rely on the external, the outside, the, the law and circumcision. But the scriptures tell us that the real Jew is the one who was one inwardly. And we, t- we could take this principle and we could apply it to our Christian lives. And the Christian, of course, it means follower of Christ. So what makes a person who says they are a Christian a real Christian? Just going back to being born again, it's the inward reality of that new birth. That's what it is. It's all about the inward and and the Jews again they had the sign of the circumcision the outward sign believers what do we have we have the ordinance of water baptism and so if you want something to compare to the circumcision for Christians it will be water baptism because many people think just because I was water baptized that automatically punches my ticket to heaven no it, it starts with being born again you get born again of the spirit First, if, if if you're not born again, then what happens for a person who gets water baptized without that experience of that spiritual birth, rebirth? What happens is that water baptism just becomes a glorified bath. It doesn't mean anything at that point. Just like for the Jew, the circumcision in the flesh doesn't mean anything. If there's no inward change, inward commitment. And of course... Are, are the fact that we are born again, there will be evidence of it. There will be evidence in the way we love. Because Jesus said, people will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. And of course, in First John, towards the end of the New Testament, it says that we know that we have passed, already passed, past tense, saved already from death to life. If what? If we have love for the brethren. These are signs of a, a true birth, a, a true born again experience within the believer. There should be evidence in our lives, in our walk, that we're born again. In John 3, 8, it says, As Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he's trying to explain to him the idea of being born again. Jesus tells him that, look, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of the wind, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. And so Jesus is saying, look, you can't see the spirit just like you can't see the wind. But just like you can see the after effects of the wind, you can see you can see leaves blowing. You can see paper blowing. 
but you don't know where the wind is coming from. You don't see it. It's the same way with a person who is born again. A person can't look inside me and, and see that I'm born again just by staring at me. They can't see that what took place in my heart. They can't see what the spirit did, exactly what he did in my heart when I repented and said, I do to Jesus when I put my faith in him. And nobody can see that in you as well. But what people should be seeing is the after effects of of that born again experience in your life. And, And so this is evidence. This is the way we should be walking according to the word of God. Now, that name Jew, and this is interesting because it's going to get us to where we're ultimately going in the message tonight. Because it talks about, again, the difference between a real Jew and and a, and a false Jew in God's eyes. And so that name Jew comes from the patriarch Judah. Judah, one of the one of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it comes from Judah. And that name Jew was at first given to a person who belonged to the tribe of Judah or to that separate kingdom of Judah. Remember, the kingdom was split after King Solomon died. And so those who were part of the southern kingdom, Judah, they were referred to as Jews at one point. It was that name was for them. And that distinguished them from the people of the northern kingdom because there were 10 tribes in the northern kingdom and that kingdom split. And so that was Israel. And so it started off like that. And then during the captivity that remember, they were were captured by the Babylonians taken out of the land. And after they were restored back to the land, the name Jew began to be extended to everyone who was a part of the Hebrew nation. And we look in verse 29 and and what we see here as we consider that background information of where the word Jew came from, came from Judah. When we consider that, we can understand the play on the words here in 29 because it says he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that of the heart and the spirit, not of the not in the letter whose praise is not from men but from God. Why, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because the word Judah means praise. And, and, and the word Jew was taken out of Judah. So he's saying, hey, you, you could choose Jew to be a false Jew who is only living in the physical and seeking praise from men That's what the false Jew would do. Or you could be a true Jew who is inwardly right with God and you're seeking praise. You're seeking Judah from God. That's what, again, Judah means. It means praise. And so there you have a play on the word there. That's why it's significant in verse 29. And so you want to be a false Jew? You want to be a real one? You want to just focus on outward circumcision and and the law? Or you want to focus on the inward change, the inward spiritual circumcision and truly obeying the law and really having a right relationship with God and and, and not just seeking praise from people because you want to gain attention for yourself from people. But now you're you're truly living for God. You truly have a change of heart. And now you are truly seeking the praise that comes from God. And as believers, have you found yourself, or even before Christ, have you found yourself seeking praise from men instead of from God? And I just want to share a secret with you that from whoever you seek praise from, that's really who you're serving. That's who has the priority in your life. So, so these Jews who are focusing on the praise of men just by having the, the, the outward showings of a religious person, of a person who looks the part, they're really serving men. But they should have been serving and focusing on this God who loves them, this God who chose them, this God who wants to use them. 
And I like what it says in, in one of Pastor Al's favorite verses in Galatians 1, verse 10. In the New Living Translation, just to make this point, it says, obviously, Holy Spirit through Paul is speaking, I am not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. Then he goes on to say, if pleasing people were my goal, then I wouldn't be Christ's servants. So again, whoever we're seeking to please, whoever we're, we're seeking the praise from, that's who we're serving. The apostle Paul knew that. And it's recorded in the scriptures for us to read. Now there are some dangers of seeking the praise from men. The one danger is since the focus is on what man can see and you're focused on, on doing those outward things, then what's going on? The, the inward part is ignored. Therefore, there is no growth in our lives. And the second danger of seeking praise from men is that the fear of man will prevent us from following the true leader that is Jesus. In John 12, verses 42 and 43, it says, excuse me, nevertheless, even among the rulers or leaders, many believed on Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, these rulers did not confess Jesus, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They were afraid of being put out of the synagogue. And so they didn't confess Jesus. And it says here in verse 43 of John 12, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. And so that's the danger of seeking praise from men. The second thing is that it'll prevent us from following the true leader. Number three, we will lose rewards because Jesus even says in Matthew six verses one and two, he says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, when you give, do not sound a trumpet. Don't tell everybody, hey, look at me before you do. Don't do that before you give. Because the hypocrites do that in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men, praise from men. Assuredly, I say to you, when they receive their praise from men, then guess what? They have received their reward. So that again explains point number three of why it's dangerous to seek the praise from men. Rewards will be lost. Number four, you will miss your assignment. The Apostle Paul again, first Thessalonians two, verse four. He says, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but of God who tests our hearts. Now, if he was focused on pleasing men, he wouldn't be speaking as a person who God entrusted with the precious gospel. And so he would have missed his assignment. As many people will do if we are seeking to please men. And so long story short, and, and you already know this, many theologians in the room, it's, it's not the praise from men that matter, but, but it is the praise from God. That is the only praise that matters. And so we should be more concerned with what God will say about us than what man will say about us, good or bad. And the good thing is, is that God is able to judge even the secrets of our hearts. He's able to judge our motives, the counsels of our heart. He knows our lives from beginning to end. He knows our lives from conception to the grave. And so he is able to judge us fairly. He's not going to judge us before our whole life story is over. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, it says, Therefore, judge nothing before the time. Don't judge anything before the time is up. Don't judge anybody on how faithful of a servant they are. Don't judge the totality of somebody's life or ministry before the time. And that is what man does. They judge it before the time. They judge it based on what they see, not with the totality of the evidence that could be there when the whole story is written, the story of our lives are written. 
But he says, don't judge anything before the time until what? Until the Lord comes and the Lord will do the judging. He will both bring the light, the hidden things of darkness and reveal the motives of the heart. And then it says each one's praise will come from God. And so, in other words, it doesn't matter what men say about your ministry, about your life. What matters is when, when it's judgment day and Christ is sitting on his throne for the believer, sitting on the bema seat, ready to hand out rewards because it's reward day for us. What matters is what he says about us. And what exactly is that praise that we want to hear from God? What is that praise that we want to hear from Jesus? We want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Look, you've been faithful over a few things, over just a little bit of the stuff that I gave you to do. But look, I make you a ruler over many things. And so, yeah, people talk bad about you. But guess what? You were faithful. My judgment, my praise is what matters most. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we seek to hear. And if you do whatever God told you to do, that's what you'll hear. If you do it with a pure motive and he's pleased with the work he gave you to do, the work that you did on this side of heaven, then you're going to hear that praise from him. And as the worship team comes up, I just want to share a final exhortation with you, a final encouragement with you that I want you to take out of those doors tonight. And my exhortation, my encouragement for you tonight is to aim high. Aim high. What am I talking about? I'm talking about aiming high in regard to your source of praise. Don't don't look for your for your praise from here. Yes, we could we tell each other good job and our Lord, you were a blessing or man, woman, you were a blessing tonight. It's okay. We, you know, we don't want to put anybody on the pedestal, but, but praise God, we do appreciate one another. But I'm just saying just ultimately aim high in regard to where we're looking for our praise to come from, from God, the one who created us, the one who put us to work. And as we aim high in regard to our source of praise, then guess what? Our lifestyles will reflect that. You'll find yourself living a lifestyle that pleases God more than man. Therefore, you will see true spiritual growth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that there's any sin in our lives. If any of us have been seeking praise from men instead of from you, Oh, we pray that you forgive us. And Lord, as I mentioned, we do appreciate each other and recognize what you are doing through people. But may we not leave it there. May we not be satisfied with that or look for that. God, I pray for anybody tonight who needs prayer, that you would tug on their hearts, that they would come forward for prayer they're a believer they're not a believer lord if that lord i pray that you remove the spiritual blinders i pray that you draw them to jesus tonight and father we do love you we thank you and we praise you in jesus name amen well thank you all for coming out tonight continue to keep each other in prayer may god bless you may god keep you may god use you. My prayer is that one day each and every person who's a believer in this room will hear those awesome words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. God bless you. If I don't talk to you tonight and you and you leave before I get a chance to say hi, shake your hand, give you a hug, give you a fist bump or whatever, and be safe on the way home, okay? No speed racer.
God bless you. Don't be a hypocrite.